listener. Welcome back to Kind Mind. Thank you for listening. And thanks to those of you who are supporting this work at patreon.com slash kindmind. You can stay in touch with me there. You can also find me on Instagram at Michael Todd Fink and send your messages or questions. It's a blustery day this Saturday in early November, so you probably hear some wind in the background. This one's all about flexibility. It was recorded in the summer, in July, at the Kind Mind Gathering. Recently, I heard an interview with legendary music producer Rick Rubin, and he mentioned that he thinks we know close to nothing. Reminded me of a saying my dad used to tell me, the wise man knows how little he knows. And so in this episode, we go deeper into the Dunning-Kruger effect in psychology, which is a cognitive bias whereby people inaccurately overestimate their abilities or knowledge in a specific area due to lack of training, skills, or self-awareness needed to recognize incompetence. In other words, oftentimes we don't know enough to know we don't know enough. One of the definitions of flexibility is spiritually pliant, indicating an attitude of openness and intellectual humility in order to learn or refine our vision. It also implies a readiness to meet the unexpected and without shock. Flexibility of mind serves us well under strain and mitigates the risks of rigidness, which this episode highlights. And this mental elasticity allows us to stretch emotionally so that we can take the perspective of others while maintaining our center, so we can then resume our original shape, so to speak, if desired. The last few years or so, and the ensuing isolation from pandemic and social disruptions resulted in a lack of nuanced conversation behind our screens with character limits, and I think that may have further eroded the banks of our common life stream, resulting in wider divides and obstinate hyperbole. But this episode explores the deeper significance and etymology of flexibility and mind-body stretches to metaphysically be like water, as Bruce Lee simply put it. And this can be, I think, another path back to each other, back to mending our divisions and building community in our homes, in our families, in our world. At around the eight-minute mark or so, there is an experiment called the Stroop Effect. And there is a link in the description so you can follow along with that section and have a more immersive experience and also get to test how cognitively flexible you are and you can actually feel what it means mentally to be flexible. Otherwise, those two minutes or so won't make much sense and you would probably just want to skip through that, but I encourage you to follow the link and follow the instructions to follow along. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. That's not a beatitude, but hopefully welcome inspiration for these uncertain times. So I hope you enjoy this one. Thank you for your support, and as always, take care.
So when we look around and we feel the tension in the air and sense the deepening divides in society, I think part of that is related to a couple years of a pandemic that made us more isolated. Because when you are around other people more, when you have more time together, you naturally get more dialogue, you get more conversation with friends and family. And in isolation, we're behind screens more. And we talk past each other. It's sort of like being in a car. And if you think of what the communication is like between people and cars, it's so limited and it, it quickly deteriorates into fighting and aggression with social media and tweeting and so on. It's, uh, it's very limited. So I feel like the, the banks have receded and now we're, we're further apart and people are more stubborn with wherever they're at. And you see more extremes happening. So one of the, the ways through this is to try to make ourselves more open and more cognitively flexible, which we're going to explore tonight, to be able to close that gap or bridge that gap, I should say. Let's start out with a little personal reflection. I'm going to ask a few questions and I'd just like you to self-reflect and see what comes up for you. And then let this be a foundation, a starting point for our investigation tonight, for our exploration of this topic. First, how cognitively flexible do you think you are? Secondly, in what ways are you open to other people's perspectives? approaches and ideas. And third, in what ways could you better develop your flexibility of thinking? So let's talk about this word flexibility. It has etymological roots in the word flex and fleck, which meant to bend. And Bending matters when it comes to cognition or to our mind in the sense that if we can bend, we can avoid breaking. So a tree branch, when it's more alive, can the ends can be brought together in, in a circle without it breaking. As the tree ages and dies, the branch becomes has less moisture in it and becomes more rigid. And when you try to bring the ends together, it cracks, it breaks. We can also associate bending with humility. So in a lot of cultures, people bend in a greeting like Namaskar in India as a sign of humility, as a sign of reverence and openness to another, but also recognizing whatever wisdom or um, oneness is there between the two, like we talked about last month. So in cognition, this flexibility means the ability to shift our way of thinking from one mode to another. And to the extent that a person can do that with their attention, that typically translates or can predict uh, how well a person can cope with shifts or changes in their environment or in their circumstances. So I wanted to show you an example of this or a test with this called the Stroop test. Let me share my screen with you. 
what we're going to do here is we're going to look at these words starting with the word red in the corner. Read out loud as I go through these. Red, orange, green, brown, pink, green, blue, yellow, red, yellow, blue, green, orange, blue, green, yellow, blue, blue, yellow, blue, pink, white, white, green, red. Okay, that probably took about 30 seconds to a minute, something like that, maybe 30, 40 seconds. We're going to look at a new list of words, of color words, but this time we're going to name the color, not what the word says. So now you are re requested to ignore uh, the actual word that is spelled and just look at the actual color of the word and say that out loud. We'll do it together. We'll attempt to. <laughs> Green, blue, red, <laughs> blue, red, yellow, red, blue, yellow, blue, white, yellow, green, pink, orange, pink, green, red, green, red, orange, blue, pink, orange, green. All right, we got through it, you guys, but that, that time around, it took significantly longer, correct? But we could do it, or maybe maybe not all of you were able to do it with me. But the point here is that we had to be flexible to be successful. If we could shift our way of thinking into a different mode, so there was a different type of cognitive processing from the first test to the second test, and it is a challenge. It stretches the mind a little bit, but to the extent that we can let go of the other way of being and invite the new mode in, a person can solve the problem, can be effective. And there are many parallels from this test to psychological well-being. Now, despite the growing polarization and contentiousness from one half of society towards the other half and vice versa, and how that plays out in the news, there is a clear divergence in the tracks of mainstream media versus independent media. So for example, we can kind of see that if you watch a certain news channel, you're going to get a totally different version of the same story, or maybe even a story that's not a story compared to another, right? But if you go to say podcast land, or to YouTube or something like that, you can actually look up the foremost expert in the world on something like cognitive flexibility. And you can listen to that person discuss their ideas, their research, uh, their work for hours. You can watch their 
their PowerPoint presentations. You can get the summary of one person's 40 years of work, you know, in, an, in a two, three hour video. So my point here is how uh, amazing is that juxtaposition that we live in this time where, where, where what we would see on TV just seems so limited. And yet we have access to the most intelligent conversations of history in a different domain. Maybe what we're seeing is, you know, just like a dying effort from an old model, sort of like how Blockbuster doubled down on their business model after Netflix emerged. And uh, Reed Hastings, the CEO and founder of Netflix, and I know Netflix has been struggling recently, but but it's still it's still a valuable company. In 2003, I think it was, he went to the, I can't remember the name of the CEO of Blockbuster at the time, offered his company to Blockbuster for 50 million. And, and Blockbuster said, why would we, why would we spend anything on some passing DVD mailer uh, hustle, you know? And, uh, and you just think like a little more than 10 years later in the, and today the, the company Netflix is worth 32 billion, but inflexibility, the, the new way was coming and the old model just couldn't, couldn't conceive it. And they, what they end up doing after it was too late to just put more candy at the counter, thinking that they could maybe uh, make up the difference that way, just very old ways of thinking. This also uh, manifests in the principal agent problem of companies where to have flexibility of thinking among even the CEOs. Now, now the CEOs aren't always owners of a lot of companies. So getting paid millions and millions of dollars means just try to keep your job as long as you can, right? And, uh, and, and so it doesn't promote new ideas or flexible ways of thinking. But we have access to these very long-form conversations, very nuanced dialogue in, in different forms of media. So if you feel frustrated by the lack of nuance or the lack of dialogue on television, I think it's, it's a good opportunity to, for us to just be flexible in the way that we learn. Well, that doesn't, that clearly doesn't work for me anymore. And rather than getting like a two minute soundbite, from someone with strong opinions on television, let me get a very thoughtful discussion in a podcast or something like that. And so now I think we have a lot, we have a lot more power, which I think actually forces the media companies to be more rigid. Why? Because it's really hard to compete with a million podcasts with uh, that can spend hours and hours on one particular topic all over the world and new new ones popping up thousands popping up every week their best bet is to do what they know will work from marketing 101 anger half of the audience and the other half will feel a sense of devotion to you so one of the simplest marketing tools is to really just piss off half of the population so, you know, like sometimes in my, in my work with kind mind, I have people wonder, you know, well, you know, you seem to sometimes have a way of just dancing around issues that, um, 
allows for everybody, but but shouldn't you, you know, be taking some hard line stances on things? Sure, maybe, but I, I would say that that's the weakest way to be successful, to try to be inclusive, right? Because uh, you lose everybody then, and, and I experience this sometimes, because one half wants you to take a hard line stance because they think, you know, maybe, maybe you actually believe this about a particular issue. So, so you ought to be firm about it. And then the other half feels like you're not on their side anyway. So you basically lose everybody. The hardest thing to do is to be inclusive. The easiest way to be successful is to just um, dig your dig your heels in the sand. And then you'll be praised by enough people, even if it's a this is what we what we mean by a cult phenomenon, that those people will invest everything into the message. So I think it's just important to keep those things in mind. Charles Darwin, in his book, The Descent of Man, has a quote, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. And this leads me to the next point about cognitive flexibility and mental flexibility, that there is an evolutionary phenomena in all of us called the Dunning-Kruger effect, named for two psychologists who researched this. It's a cognitive bias that posits that people tend to overestimate their knowledge or their abilities or their skills. It's evident when people think they should have got a higher grade on a paper or something that's maybe a little bit more subjective. So that they lack the metacognition, which means to be able to see outside of themselves how they think or how they perform. And the real danger, as Darwin is pointing out, with the Dunning-Kruger effect is when someone has a little bit of knowledge. They have just enough knowledge to be overconfident, but not enough knowledge to know what they don't know. Whereas some people who are even more ignorant don't claim any uh, superiority with a particular field because they just know nothing at all about it. So this was demonstrated in a series of experiments by Dunning and Kruger, but one that stands out to me is a very large cohort of uh, respondents were surveyed about different areas of, of knowledge, biology, politics, nature, a, a whole bunch of different areas. And they would ask the respondents just yes or no, are you familiar with different terms in that field? And they would be announcing these terms and then interject some totally made up words, nonsensical words that mean nothing at all, and include that in their list. And 90% of this large sample, 90% of the people claimed some knowledge of those nonsensical words, those made up words. And it was higher if the word was supposedly related to a field that they knew something about. This is a problem. Clearly from that experiment, it doesn't just affect some of us. Why? Because we have to be incompetent at some things. Life is just too short. We just don't have enough time nor attention to be competent in everything. And as a civilization, there is probably nothing that we know everything about, though we we might feel like it or we might present as such, or we might believe that that day will come. Right. So that leads to 
a lot of posturing, right? And in reality, the more you know about anything, this is somewhat of a problem in, in terms of policy and dialogue that the so-called experts are the least confident. Because what happens to them is what should happen. The more you learn about anything, the more you're inspired by curiosities, not certainties. We feel more wonder if we really love a subject. All of the, the rigidness in our society, all the stubbornness, and anything that we could argue about is because we have a false premise that we're talking about the same thing. Philosophically speaking, there is an ontological and epistemological barrier to being able to work out our problems. Just you take something like that you could try to define and you realize how hard it really is to define anything. So we just skip over it. Well, it's so hard to define that, but but we know that it is. So let's just argue about it, right? So think of something like, what is the definition of intelligent life? You look on YouTube or you listen to podcasts, people love to uh, hypothesize about life in the universe. You think there could be other intelligent life in the universe, in the galaxy. What about in the solar system? You would first have to define what intelligent life is to be able to identify it. Now, it sounds easy enough, right? And well, intelligent life is like us. Oh, like the human being. Well, what is a human being? Human being is definitely different than the rest of the animals because we just feel it, right? We know it. But what is intelligence? And when you when you try to define intelligence, you, you soon realize, well, actually other animals are intelligent too. If we say it's the, the ability to use tools, well then primates know how to use tools. Dolphins even use tools. If it is the ability to use the brain to form complex social relationships, you know, those that would involve sorrow with loss or grief or other types of complex associations that build long bonds. And you find, well, well, primates can be friends for 50 years plus. And, and you see this with, with other types of mammals or higher mammals. Then you find that you can never really agree on what it is to be a human. We just know that we weren't here and now we are. And in the future, we won't be. So where many philosophers end up with this and why they seem so strange, because they're trying to answer what is a chair, you know, what is a person? While everyone else says, we know that what a person is, that's a given, but it's not. And so it becomes easy to argue. They end up deciding that something is, you know, true-ish, real-ish. You know, there-ish, or here-ish, or that-ish, or this-ish. <laughs> and uh, already, when, when you, you know, have this kind of philosophical mind or curiosity, you're, you're already more flexible. Now, you, you, you feel less conclusive and, and more curious. And then Dunning and Kruger said that there's this dual problem 
that we have ignorance, which means there's some incompetence, like I'm not good with electronics. I'm not so skilled uh, with my hands, but I have some skill in other ways. Like I used to be good at math problems. I don't know about anymore. And uh, very few things. I'm, I'm okay at understanding music. And other people have other competencies. So we have this dual problem, meaning we, we have the incompetence, but then we also lack the skills to know how incompetent we are. And that's a problem for all, not just some. You add to that, like we were talking about last month, the in-group, out-group biases. And um, and then, then you have you know, real tension. But after enough knowledge, like I said before, confidence starts to decline. And this is also not synonymous with IQ. Let's be clear about that also. We're all equipped with this software, this program of uh, overestimating our abilities. And we're susceptible to the running of this heuristic program because there will always be areas of knowledge that fall in that sweet spot of knowing something, but not enough to know that we don't know that something. So flexibility of mind, cognitive flexibility, like we're doing in the Stroop experiment, being able to shift from one mode to another is fluid thinking. And that can help us adapt to different situations, which is relevant today because everything's different than it was a year ago and everything is different than it was before two years ago. And we don't know how different things are going to be next year. But we all get the feeling now that it could be pretty hard to predict how different they could be. Economically, public health wise, socially. So flexible mindsets can actually liberate us from limiting thought and its associated pitfalls and the stuckness just as a human being navigating life or as a intelligent-ish being in the universe, whatever it means to be human, and leads us to openness. And that openness creates, well, gives us access to possibility and opportunity. I also want to differentiate flexibility here from indecision. I'm indecisive. I'm a Libra. That doesn't mean automatically that I'm flexible. Just because it's hard for me to take a decision doesn't necessarily mean I would be happy with any decision that's made for me. Um, And also consider that when we are born, we have all our organs, except this one. This one's not done yet. I mean, yeah, we have more growing to do, but we have a hand, we have a heart, we have a stomach, you know, if we're born healthy enough. But the brain doesn't have all the parts fit together yet. And another oddity about that, or an irony, socially speaking, is that we tend to pass on our ideologies to to kids, especially religious and political ideologies. So their brain, those Legos aren't all put together yet, but you're trying to wire in certainty if you pass on an ideology. And I'm not saying I know what the right answer is here. I'm just saying that that must be um, a strange thing for the brain to try to build around. It's not finished, but it's got to, it's got to fit finished ideas. 
into the unfinished organ. So there's a lot of complications to this. Now, we also think about flexibility in the body. And I propose here that there's probably a correlation between flexibility in the body and flexibility in the mind because the brain is highly metaphorical. It's just these six pounds of overlapping matter and it has to perform all, all these multiple functions in the same regions. So there's probably something analogous to how a child is flexible and how we sometimes think of being older as growing more rigid. Well, well, there's also that rigidness or stiffness happening in the body. But in a metaphorical sense, a child is falling all the time. A baby trying to walk does not care about how many times he or she falls. Just motivated by the, the impetus to go further. The baby is not counting its failures. It's still like completely locked in to possibility. And small children, toddlers, small adolescents, they play. I mean, before devices, <laughs> at least hopefully some are still playing. But when, when I'm driving around in the summer and I like pass parks and I pass the basketball courts, I'm like, why is nobody playing? It's a perfectly nice day, but better things to do maybe. But they're playing ordinarily and falling. And then you get to teenage years and kids play organized sports. Like I played football and basketball. And how many times do I fall to the ground in a single game? Probably a bunch of times, right? However, when you're older, you have to do everything possible to avoid a fall. That is like the enemy of the elderly, right? This can be cataclysmic, but the elderly are three times as likely to die after a fall than their counterparts under 70. But I think that there's some parallels here and not that we need to literally keep falling, but metaphorically or spiritually, we have to be able to lower ourselves to the ground. And I think there's some cultural sensibilities that actually make this harder for us. Something that comes to mind is the saying, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So that can kind of motivate a person into just forming a strong opinion, even if they don't have enough to know what they don't know. And I think that that's not necessarily the best wisdom for a young person. Bruce Lee said, Keep learning, you know, be more eager to learn than to conclude. Now, you, if you parse this saying a little bit more, if you don't stand for something, well, the only way to fall is to be standing. If you're humble, you would have lower to, and you, you bend like what flex means. You would have a shorter distance to fall. And if you are literally in the trenches doing the work, you can't fall at all. If you're on your hands and knees cleaning up the mess, that person can't fall. So I think there's actually another way to approach this, that if I'm in the dirt, I'm one with the earth. The earth has my back. I can't fall because I'm in it. When I hold my head up high in a proud boast or an empty boast, 
I'm more rigid and I'm more, uh, I'm, I can more easily be knocked down and I'm a target to be knocked down. So anyways, that's one. Um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, well, what if it could be better? What if it could be way better? You know, that, that also is similar to, you find this, I think, more in workplace cultures. Well, we never did it that way. Or this is the way we've always done it. There's a rigidness there. Well, yeah, but how could we think differently about this problem? Or how could we think differently about what we do and the experiences of others who aren't like, aren't like us? You know, I think there, there's some norms that we, we would have to work through to also feel like it's safe to be uncertain. It's safe to be curious. We often attribute ignorance to malevolence. And in this deeper sense of flex in language, you get circumflex. That was one of its origins in, in Latin, I believe. And the circum means around. So you're bending your mind around anything. Well, I can't know what it's like on the other side of this world or this issue if I don't go over there. You know, if I don't bend over there, I don't navigate all around. So I think that's kind of a, a beautiful visual for flexibility. Can I take my mind further around? Can I be so pliant that I could stretch myself all the way over to your shoes emotionally? And pliant and elastic with flexibility when it pertains to a substance means it could be stretched and it can resume its form. You know, we have this fear that like, if I even get exposed to wrong ideas, well then it'll, it'll totally corrupt me. And then we think we have to suppress ideas that could be harmful. But probably what we need is just more access to the full view. So uh, when I think about my own experiences or, or my own struggles with being flexible or when I was taken out of something, a familiar circumstance, like when I, I moved, our family moved to Illinois when I was 12 or so. And that was kind of, kind of hard at the time because we had been in one place for maybe five years and it was enough time to, to feel some mastery over routine at school and to have comfortable familiarity with with neighbors and friends and then to be uprooted it created a sort of rigidness in me in, in the beginning but then being able to adapt because well mostly because i was young enough to adapt i mean had had i been in that place longer before the movie probably would have been harder but it ended up being a good gift because having the time and the necessity to change and to adapt gave me a certain ability to stretch further. I probably wouldn't have wanted to go to school in Washington, D.C., which is pretty far away for, for a teenager. And then to India and to play and to study in Ireland and, and to be able to go with nobody and knowing nobody. But it, it always was built upon that, that upheaval of 12 years old. 
that stretched me enough that I knew that there was a lot of benefits on the other side of the unknown. And now when I find myself comfortable, it concerns me because I, my goal isn't to be comfortable. Um, I, I read a quote from uh, Woody Guthrie he said something like the folk singer's job is to comfort the disturbed people and to disturb the comfortable people. <laughs> and I love that. But anyways, I don't like it in myself when I'm comfortable because I actually feel like then I'm vulnerable, then I'm not ready because I want to stay ahead of change. Meaning if I can take on another challenge, if I can stretch myself further, if I can grow myself more, then I don't have to wait till I receive a blow from life. This leads me to the risks of rigidness. There was a, a psychiatrist, Dr. Tracy Marks. She has a, a, a nice YouTube channel, but I like the points she makes about rigidity and how to know if there are elements of rigidness or if we're inflexible in our thinking. One is emotional inhibition. This doesn't necessarily mean that a person who's more rigid doesn't get angry. This means they, they probably inhibit uh, the wider spectrum of emotion. And anger might be their volcanic feeling because of the in inhibition of emotions. So that's one. The second one is a type of vigilance, maybe hypervigilance in more black and white thinking or personality disorders like um, borderline personality disorder, which is more characterized by all, all or nothing uh, mindsets. But a person might be hypervigilant and suspicious of the way things are and, you know, like little disruptions. Another one is being guarded or aloof or seemingly distant to people in your life. And sometimes the inflexible person chalks this up to being deep or complicated. You know, I like take an honest look at myself with some of these sometimes because I do like to be alone and I want to understand myself as that solitude that I can enjoy. Like it's totally comfortable for me to be alone, but is it, I don't want it to become a sense of superiority or grandiosity. Like I can't be around other people because they just spoil everything for me. It's one thing if that solitude is because there's something curious I'm about that, that could really be enjoyed. And, and can I do that and also enjoy being with others? and being social and connecting with people. If you can do both, and you can do both in a meaningful way, then that can be a, a mitigating factor for, for rigidness. Another one is rule governed. The need for rules. You know, rules are helpful, but I think as spiritual oriented people or, or compassionate people, you would like to live in a world, you'd like to live in a family, you'd like to live in a neighborhood where you don't need hard rules to try to cooperate. Of course, we need rules, right? Because the rules are because of outliers. We'd like to think that it doesn't take rules for people not to just go 
pillage their neighbor's house, that people can find good reasons to cooperate, even if there are some selfish reasons, like building trust, for instance, can get you cooperation long-term. So even if it was motivated by long-term selfishness, but the overemphasis on rules and the, and the need for control, the theme of control there can create rigidness. And then a person like that feels a compulsion to notice any little thing that's wrong and tends to, to judge that this could have been better, this could have been better, the service wasn't good, they made a mistake here. And you could imagine how that kind of tension would build up in a person. And then the last one is bitterness and envy. Because a, a rigid person is often silently comparing and judging and maybe not expressing that through their aloofness or their distance or their guardedness. And so that ends up manifesting as regret and uh, a lot of mental turmoil in the end. So those are both the, the characteristics and the risk of inflexibility. I've been thinking about this Japanese Zen master, Hakuin. I've only learned about his teachings a little bit more recently, and it seems to be coming at the right time in my life. Because something that continues to perplex me about wisdom and about the imparting or the attempt to impart wisdom from the teacher to the student, which I think to some extent is an illusion, because if, and I've said this before, that that my um, understanding so far of wisdom is that it's innate, so it can't really be imparted, because we don't become wiser, or one isn't wiser simply by growing older and adding experiences and memories. One is wiser by deconstructing illusions. And so the, the teacher can't truly impart that because there's nothing to impart. There's nothing to actually be gained. And if there's a such thing as a realization, that means it's not an attainment. It's not an accomplishment. It's not something that a teacher can say, hey, I will take you there. It's when there is realized to be here and always here. My confusion or what continues to perplex me about this is how it can be that such exalted uh, sages, mystics, pillars of wisdom traditions can do so much harm to their students, not in all cases, but we, we hear about these stories, so this is, and cults, for instance, but in a lot of those so-called cults, I've read lots of books from lots of different teachers, and I do believe that there is genuine awakening in many of these teachers. Some of the writings, some of the, the messages are very illuminated, and in, in some cases, the, the clarity with which they can talk about some of these obstacles to awakening in the mind would not be possible for people that didn't have some direct experience. So then the question becomes, well, if they have some genuine awakening, some, some deep psychological truth that they have discovered within themselves, then why would they manipulate their student for sex? Why would they exploit 
followers to to get money and to have more possessions and things like that. And learning more about Hakuin, reading his teachings, and he has an autobiography called Wild Ivy. I think he maybe gives some clue to this. So he had, or claims to have had an enlightenment or Satori in Japan. He lived in the 1600s and 1700s. A Satori experience at 23 or 24 years old. But he never rested there. He never felt like his work was done as a student. And he continued to learn from masters until his 40s. Well, he continued to learn his whole life. But before he was you know, the, the teacher that everybody was coming to, he continued to be flexible and humble. Because he said to himself in, in his autobiography, I've had this deep contact with reality. I know who I am and I know what I'm not. But that doesn't mean I know how to live yet. When he was 41, I believe, he writes about what he considered to be his final enlightenment. So now there was this idea in Hakuin's teachings that there isn't just some experience that you can have, something that comes and goes and then gives you some status. I don't know if it was him or somebody like him that said the ego wants to be enlightened. If there was an experience that could come and now it has passed, well, then that's not it. Listening to Hakuin or reading Hakuin, this is it, perhaps. That the Dunning-Kruger effect of enlightenment. People have had just enough of a taste of enlightenment to be incompetent enough to harm people. Whereas people with no clue whatsoever what cosmic consciousness feels like, even William James, the, the psychologist who studied mystical experiences and was so fascinated by it and wanted there to be something miraculous about the mystery of life and compiled this in the book, The Varieties of Re Religious Experiences. It's an amazing book, but he himself admitted he never had anything that he felt was a mystical experience or that would give him any proof of God or Samadhi or unity consciousness. Therefore, he wasn't going around, you know, building a cult, perhaps. But other psychologists did, you know, who, who did have different experiences. Like, I, I know, I don't know, but I mean, I've read from other authors that who knew Carl Jung that he was pretty unethical with his patients, but had, you know, deep philosophical and psychological insights. So anyways, this Dunning-Kruger effect of enlightenment could mean that people have mystical experiences. In fact, I think many people have a mystical experience at some point in their life. I think if you really reflect on your childhood, you know, there's probably a moment in wonder or in curiosity or in play where you lost your, your sense of self. And Hakuin says, when you lose the sense of self, you're one with the universe. You are the universe. But when you have a strong sense of self, there's the universe and you. So perhaps Hakuin is right. And what he said is the final enlightenment was the 
integration of the awakening as the service to all sentient beings, the service to all life, and the work to make all life better. And this is the ethical component that's often missing. You know, people talk about crazy wisdom like Chogyam Trungpa, and that justifies, you know, why he can be an alcoholic and abusive to people and manipulate students to sleep with him because you you have an ego because you don't you're too attached to what you think I'm supposed to be. So the teacher in in those kind of circumstances always has that card to pull out. Well, you have an ego and you shouldn't be so rigid about what, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is my way of shattering your ego. And like this, they're missing what Hakuin's saying. And then Hakuin also in his writings talked about what he called do nothing Zen. If you reach a state of tranquility and equanimity, but it's only for you to just be able to just be peaceful all the time. And you, what good are you then? So he called it do nothing, do nothing Zen. He said the, the highest Zazen, the moving, the movement with the meditation still continuing. This is like in the wisdom of some of those sayings of what people would do and how they would continue to work before and after enlightenment. But in Hakuin's teaching, to be able to invoke this feeling into everything so that there's not meditation time and my spiritual time and then my family or work time, but to infuse everything you're doing with the realization and to be working for for the betterment of of all all beings. Well then if that is like a higher enlightenment or a way to integrate the realization, then a person who's harming others is clearly not competent enough spiritually to know what they don't know. His message though is to keep going, keep learning, keep expanding, keep humbling yourself and keep serving. I want to read some of his quotes. All beings by nature are Buddhas, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there's no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddhas. What I like about this is you think of ice as the cold, the frigid, freezing rigid, but it's still water. The people among us who we perceive to be rigid, stubborn, stuck, are still Buddhas underneath, hence the motivation to serve. Because he's serving what's true. Realization is never something that's acquired. He sees all life as yet to wake up. There's uh, nothing like fundamentally wicked about that. But yes, there's an ice, an iciness to the world. Underlying great doubt, there is great Satori. Where there is thorough questioning, there will be thorough experience of awakening. And we'll come back to this in the ways to become more flexible. But the point here is, keep doubting. Doubt so much that you awaken. It's when we feel certain of ourselves that we strengthen the ego. At the bottom of great doubt lies great awakening. 
If you doubt fully, you awaken fully. What is this true meditation? It is to make everything, coughing, swallowing, waving the arms, motion, stillness, words, action, the evil and the good, prosperity and shame, gain and loss, right and wrong, into one single koan. He had a very advanced disciple, a woman, Satsu, which also made him unique. He taught all people. He taught rich people, poor people. He didn't just seek out the aristocrats. And she had a daughter who died, I believe, and she was crying. And some people were making fun of fun of her. I thought Hakuin gave you the title of Satori to insult her. And she said something like, my tears are, are a better memorial than prayers from priests and all that you believe, and my tears will pass, but let nature be. So she was really wise as well, but she was also a very difficult student of his. She challenged him a lot. Hakuin was a monk, and so he didn't have a family. But there's a story from when he was younger, uh, and and I'll explain later why I hope it's not true, but there's a story from when he was younger in the biographies that he was accused of fathering a child with a younger girl. And the parents came and accused Hakuin at the temple, and he did not defend himself. And then they said they were not wanting to be responsible for the expenses of the child because... They thought the child was illegitimate. And they said, you are responsible for this child. And Hakuin nodded and and then supposedly raised started raising the child. He would have the baby with him when he was begging as a monk. People would react with scorn in the villages and it ruined his reputation at that time. And then supposedly sometime later, like a year or two later, the girl told the parents that she she really had a relationship with another boy in the village and then the father felt embarrassed and went back to Hakuin and asked for forgiveness and Hakuin said don't worry about it we make mistakes or something like that then they wanted the baby back well you could imagine for any human being if you're the caregiver for for an infant for multiple years you probably feel something. And to just in that moment be able, without any contest, he said, good for a child to be with family. Now, I hope that's not true because, well, it's a sad story. And then I would rather it be true because it's that would also be sad to try to make a point by saying our girl accused him of that inappropriate relationship. Because sometimes in Zen, you you hear these crazy stories and you don't know if it's history or if it's just mythology or another koan. The master chops off the finger of the student and then the student is instantly awakened. Well, I, I, I hope that something like that didn't really happen because that, I think, violates the principle that Hakuin's talking about of not harming people. But... Whatever the reality is of that story, there are two elements here with the flexibility of mind with Hakuin. 
One was the equanimity. There's a Zen parable now that kind of enshrines this story into uh, a saying, is that so? Somebody says, you're selfish, is it so? Someone says, you're an idiot, is it so? You never think about anybody but yourself. You don't do enough around here, oh, is it so? That supposedly that encapsulates the attitude that Hakuin had when he was accused. So there's that, there's the equanimity. But then there's also the non-attachment. Because he had his reputation destroyed and this accusation thrust upon him and he accepted it. Because Hakuin at that stage in his life did not need approval from anybody. His sense of self or self-realization wasn't based on status. It didn't require status. If anything, he felt that the higher the status, the harder it would be to defeat the ego because the construct of self is built on the idea that we are something. The self in that sense is like a corporation, which is like a file in a folder somewhere that says it's something, but there's nowhere where you can actually point to it or touch it. Where is Apple? Where is Amazon? We see the truck, we see the logo, we see the sun, but is that Amazon? Is, is this Apple, Apple? Is the logo on the computer, the, co the corporation? You just, you don't see it anywhere. You can't actually find it. And all the people that are Apple will be gone and then there will still be an Apple. Then there's non-attachment. When his circumstances changed again, he let go. There's also another anecdote from Hakuin's life that I, I knew this story before, but I didn't know it was attributed to Hakuin. I learned about it in India. Supposedly there was a warrior that came to learn from Hakuin and he asked Hakuin, is there really a hell and a paradise as described in different scriptures? This was the first, one of the first times Hakuin's meeting the student and he asked, asked him, who are you? The warrior is thinking that Hakuin's trying, that he needs to justify why I can come to you and ask a question. He says, I'm a, I'm a samurai. He puffs up with the rigidness of ego, who he is. And then Hakuin states, well, what kind of lord would hire you to guard him? I mean, look at you. Your face looks more like that of a beggar than a samurai. And then immediately anger washes over the warrior and he reaches for his sword with the impulse because anger is a signal of violence. It isn't necessarily the violence, but it's a signal. So he touches the sword. Hakuin sees this and he says, I bet your sword is as dull as your head. And then the samurai pulls the sword out, pulls it back and he's like, you want to see how sharp my sword is? Insult me one more time and I'll cut off your head. And then Hakuin replies, the gates of hell are opening. And then the samurai puts the sword back into the sheath and, you know, is trembling for a moment and then calms down, but feels this sense of genuine grace wash over him. Because now the master, Hakuin, is looking at him with true love and acceptance. Like you asked me and I showed you. And he realizes that Hakuin gave me what I wanted. 
and he's looking at me with with complete compassion in his eyes and in that calmness in that stillness when it was full in the spirit of the warrior hakuin says now gates of paradise are opening meaning that the warrior didn't become something new his seeking his striving stopped and he was just resting in the grace of being in that way hakuin made sense of the concepts of heaven and hell as not some physical place you can go to but the state of ignorance and the state of uh recognition of who you are you're peaceful and you're calm he's showing him not because you acquired something because you were able to rest just as you are and you realize that that you didn't need anything now you didn't come to some new place you came back home so i i i really love these these stories and i know i'm t- taking a lot of time but i quickly want to share with you how to grow more flexible number 1 stretching the body i mentioned before that you know we tend to get more stiff i get i've i've grown very stiff in my 40s and it's harder to to move and play basketball and stuff like that but i'm working on it and i think there's a correlation between what happens in the body like stiffness in the body i think could be interpreted in the brain as stiffness in life or feeling stuck in life now of course with enough flexibility of mind let the body do what it's going to do and we can accept it and meet it with equanimity but we're learning and we're growing and if we can do yoga or tai chi or move our body and feel flexible in our body the metaphorical brain will work with that like i've said before when you give an interviewer a heavy clipboard they're more likely to think the candidate has more gravity of character if you if the interviewer is holding a hot coffee versus iced coffee they're more likely to feel warmth with the candidate because our brain is metaphorical that's how it saves space number 2 meditation there is really interesting research now that shows that people who practice mindfulness and meditation have more cognitive flexibility in the like the stroop test that we did earlier it's not completely clear what the neural correlates are to this but there's something happening in different regions of the brain that translates to the ability to be able to shift to different modes of thinking with meditation we're still learning about what what is equanimity and flexibility in the brain what is it about these particular structures or the synapses that give birth or or create that as as an emergent experience for people real meditation is a state it's not something that we do what we do are techniques to try to be in meditation just like it doesn't quite make sense to ask somebody what kind of sleep do you practice but we do have different techniques that help us relax and this was like with meditation somebody chants and then their mind gets worn out and they become still somebody else that doesn't work somebody else lighting incense relaxes them they fall asleep someone else the incense makes them irritable and they can't sleep that's the relationship with meditation and sleep but i would imagine when you're in that state 
you start to see that you're not the rigidness. You're not your thoughts. Thoughts are phenomena that you can be aware of. If you're observing phenomena like thoughts, then you can't be thoughts. And part of the rigidness is the stuckness of mind, the stickiness of the thought, I'm no good, I'm not worthy. The definition of the self, the construct of, of the self tied to phenomena that's ultimately passing phenomena, impermanent. The third one is debate your own opinions. Question your thoughts and the words you say without attacking your personhood. I can think back on what I said, and that's what I do when I have to edit these podcasts. You don't even know how many times I've almost deleted the, the next episode of the podcast because I don't like what I'm saying or I don't agree with everything I'm saying. And I have to find a way to improve it the next time. But it's good for me in the sense that I get to grow by studying what I said and hearing it back. I can see where it's incomplete and it bothers me and it's hard to to release it. But I end up releasing it because I feel like in the end, it'll also be good for people to go on the journey throughout all these episodes to see that like anything that learns, I'm trying to add in new pieces and refine the ideas and ultimately improve myself and make myself more ethical and edify my views. The fourth one, try to get honest feedback about your work, whatever your work is in the world. And it doesn't just have to be your occupation, but but certainly with with our calling, our vocation, but especially with your creative endeavors. Obviously, you can pass your book on to your friends or your poem or your painting. And the people that love you are probably going to say it's it's awesome, you know, and that's nice to, to feel supported. But we also need people that can that can give us honest critique, not mean spirited criticism, but honest critique that will actually be more valuable for you. And then mentorship. This leads to metacognition. Metacognition means that I can look at the quality of my thinking and my work. I can assess how I think about my work. I can step outside of myself and then I'm not going to be so attached to the way I do things. If I don't open myself up to feedback, well, then it's easy to become stubborn. Another way to think of this when you're building something that you can feel stronger about the vision and more flexible about the details. But sometimes people get very rigid about the details and they block themselves off from opportunity. And you may hear sometimes late, lately people are saying that there's a lot of mythology to our history of, of inventions, whether it's Edison or Einstein, the discoveries and inventions. We have these mythic enshrinements of these figures in history, and it's impossible to live up to that because they've risen to this kind of mythic stature. But when you really 
dive deeper into the, the details of their life, you find that it didn't happen in a vacuum. That people in their life were helping or they were someone else had the idea. And like in Edison's case, he's stealing from Tesla. Edison's more of a businessman than an inventor. He knows how to patent and how to steal patents. So anyways, don't take that approach where you feel like I can be great and my invention will be great. My art will be great. My book will be great. The more collaborative you can make anything, the, the further you'll go. The fifth one, change your scenery. Novelty leads to flexibility. This could be move, but you know, this could also be take a different route to work for no reason and just go saunter in a forest that you've never been, but it's only like five miles away. It's pretty special when that happens, actually. For me, now that I have my e-bike, I can just like tear out into new landscapes within the area. And I feel different. I feel good also when I look at a river that was nearby that I've never seen. Six, mix up your routines in life. Do something different. Take on a new hobby or try something new with an old hobby or in a mundane task. Eat with your left hand if you're right-handed. Tie your shoe in a different way. Do something blindfolded for no reason so that you're forced to solve the problem differently. And be spontaneous with this for the short term and long term. In my 50s, can I do something different with my career? Seven, alter your problem-solving approach. I saw a TED Talk her name was Shantice. She said, scratch your nose with your finger. Everybody do that real quick. Okay, relax. Now scratch your nose without using your finger or your hand. It's taking you a while. <laughs> Go on, scratch your nose without using finger or hand. Okay. And now, Take your hands and put them under your thighs and scratch your nose without removing your hands. You see how creative one can get with something simple, but look how stuck we were for a moment. I mean, so many people just sat there after the first one. Well, if I can't scratch my nose with my fingers, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> but something was shifting in us, and that's the, the, the beauty of solving a problem differently. So in music, we would try to solve our songwriting challenges in, in unique ways. I would ask somebody to write my part, somebody else. Hey, can you write my banjo part with the violin? And I'll write your violin part with the banjo. Hey, let's write this harmony, but for children. Or another way to, to approach this is think like a child. How would a child write the next verse? How would a child try to solve our fight? Basically, it takes you out of your ordinary mode of being. And some magical things would happen when it unfolds for us when we try to solve creative problems differently in our band. Sometimes this is a matter of just using different senses. Can we write with our vision? Can we write more thinking about our sense of touch? 
or let's play this this piece without you being able to hear yourself. So don't ask to be turned up because you're not even listening to yourself. You're listening to the music. What ends up happening when I'm with other musicians, they're always telling me they can't hear themselves. And so sometimes I will take myself out of the mix altogether and then ask them, was I too loud for you? No, you, you, your, your instrument's just fine. I'm like, well, my guitar is not in there for you. So you're not listening to the music. You're thinking about your instrument and your part. Imagine you're not playing. Is this the mix you want listening to a different track on Spotify? Is that how loud you want the vocals to be? Or is that how loud you want uh, the drums to be? And then people think about the problem differently. Two more. Lateral hemispheric integration. Practice being able to shift from being analytical to being creative. Being creative often has nothing to do with being analytical. It's about being silly and playful and imaginative and wondrous. Now, analytical means assessing the, the logic of a concept or a proof, and you're using data and facts and reason and rationality. But that simultaneously can cut a person off from ideas, from spontaneity. Also, you can impose your own limitations with this. Well, if you add constraints, necessity is the mother of invention. Now that all things aren't possible, it becomes clear where you could get better. When I first started playing the guitar, or when I first started learning jazz, I had a teacher when I was learning to improvise. He said to solo over this progression, this chord progression with only a D note. And I'm like, well, how, how am I going to solo over the progression if I can't change notes? How am I going to build a me melody? And he said, you figure it out. And so it's just like scratching our nose without our hands. So I'm playing the note and I'm like, at first I'm kind of being like a little bit, I guess, passive aggressive or sarcastic. And I'm just like, just going ding, 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 ding. I'm like, well, showing him not much can be done. And he said, get out of your left brain and get creative. So then... Gradually, like us realizing, you know, I could use the mic to scratch my nose, or I could use my shoulder or the desk. Then I started thinking, well, I can play it louder and I can play it softer. So there's dynamic things I could do with the note. I could pinch it or I could pluck it. I could use my fingers or I could use the plectrum. I can play it long or I can play it short. And suddenly I realized that before adding so many more notes, I ought to expand my sense of flexibility with a single note. Santana sometimes talks about this too. Can you make one note speak in your solo? And finally, avoid hypostress. Hypostress is when you're under-challenged. So take on a healthy amount of responsibility. You will also learn from this that your endurance is way more expansive than you would have thought. I heard that something like 99% of marathon runners complete it. And that's not just because that it's easy or they, ne they never reach that point where their mind is saying, this is too much. It means that, as one Navy SEAL put it, that when your mind says enough, you're really at about 40% left in the tank. And people just don't know this about themselves. 
because they, they don't challenge themselves enough. And so when, again, coming back to what I said, when, when you're too comfortable, then you're actually starting to stiffen. So it's good to stretch out of that by having a healthy amount of challenge, challenge yourself. Hypostress means that you're so underwhelmed, you're going to be bored and it's going to have a negative effect on your mental well-being. And of course, there's hyperstress where you actually bend so much that, that you do tear or you break. So in between, you know, find that heavy balance. 